Please and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Today we're celebrating an anniversary here in our church. Uh, it's our anniversary as a church. 21 years uh, we've been around, which I was laying in bed last night thinking, holy cow, 21 years. Where did 21 years go? It has gone by so quickly and uh, God has been so gracious and uh, it's just been a joy uh, to pastor here for these past 21 years, most of the time. And it's, uh, no, just kidding, it's been great. It's been great to see children grow up to love the Lord. It's great to see um, people get married and lives lived in the presence of God and for people's lives to, to be touched. Um, as you know, we've been looking at the cross of Christ over these past four or five weeks Last week, uh, really the whole series of sermons has been based on John 19.30, where right before Jesus dies on the cross, he says it is finished, and that the cross in and of itself, there is the work of Christ, the work of God, that all comes to culmination by Jesus dying for our sins. When the finished work of Jesus on the cross occurred, It was followed by the demonstration of the power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead. It it occurred shortly thereafter that the Spirit of God was poured out on the people of God, and a birth occurred, the birth of the church. The called out ones, all through the cross, the resurrection, and the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Last week, we saw that Jesus came and died in order that the ugliest Things about us could be carried by him. I don't know if you noticed when you came in uh, the foyer this morning, but on your left as you came into the sanctuary, there was a mosaic uh, of Christ on the cross, a beautiful mosaic on the wall. Last week, when you wrote those things on the cards, uh, those things that were the ugliest thing about you that you hope nobody ever finds out, but that Jesus carried on the cross and you came and tore them up, threw them at the cross, where this past week, uh, Josh Walsh and Abby Gore took all of those and put them and made them as a mosaic of Jesus. Because it's the truth that Jesus took the worst things about our, us and took them on himself. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, another verse we've been looking at in these weeks, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. People, if there was ever a trade up that occurred for all eternity, it's this. You became right where Jesus became sin. You traded up where you could not even trade because of what Christ did on the cross for you. You are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Your shame, your sin... Your injustice committed by you and against you has been carried by Jesus Christ on the cross. As a result, we who were far away from God are now the people of God. We are now disciples. We are now the church. What does it look like for us to be disciples of the cross? Now that we have moved from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, What does it look like? Over these next two weeks, I want to look at what it means to be a disciple of the cross. What is it like to be a follower of Jesus? Since we're celebrating our 21st anniversary, I thought we'd do a little throwback song. 
from 21 years ago. This is going to crack you up. Uh, this is a uh, song by the Christian group, the Newsboys. And uh, pay attention to the words. I remember when I, by the way, I guess Irish dancing was popular 20 years ago. I have no idea what it has to do with the song, but very entertaining nonetheless. I remember when I heard that song for the first time, and it's one of those songs when the verse is going on, I had no idea what the guy was saying. And I remember when I went and looked up the words for the first time, how unusual the verse was and how odd it was. I mean, I love the chorus, and every time I got the chorus, I'd sing it, but the words are really unusual in, in their really tongue-in-cheek words about what is it going to make, what is it going to take for people to change? Somebody who's entrenched in a way of thinking, what would it make them take to move them from this category over to this category? And the, the newsboys, in their unique style, uh, say it's because we shine. We shine like lights in a dark place. And that's really what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, verses 12 and following. He's going to talk about what does it mean to be a star that shines on a dark night, how we're to be that so that we draw men to the Lord. Philippians 2, verse 12. Paul says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
Now, those of you who have been a part of Fullness for 20-something years, you know how hard it is for me to jump into a therefore passage without backing up to tell you what we're there for. You know, if you ever see therefore, you should always say, what are we there for? And Paul, um, this is, to me, one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. Paul, in chapter 1, has talked about what does it mean for us. We've been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, like we've seen over the past weeks. We have been united with Christ. Though we were far away from God now, by the grace of God, we are united with Christ. And then in Philippians 2, one of the most uh, eloquent passages in all of Scripture, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, then make my joy complete by being of the one of being of one mind, one purpose, one heart. Out of humility, don't consider other people more important than yourselves. I'm trans, I'm giving you a rough version here. Uh, don't consider others more important than yourselves, but have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and made himself nothing. See, Paul says, you're united with Christ because Christ humbled himself, came to this earth, humiliated himself to the point of death. You're united with Christ. Because you're united with Christ, now make my joy complete by doing what? Being united with one another. Humble. Don't think of others as more important than yourselves but have this mind. See, here's Paul's, here's Paul's, I think, crux of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple? We're united with him, and we're united with one another. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And Paul is about to tell us, by the way, that you working out your salvation with fear and trembling is not about you alone working out your salvation with fear and trembling. We have got, got to get over the demonic mindset that it's just me and God. This is a scheme, I think, from the very pit of hell that tells you it's just about you and your relationship with God because it is nothing in the Scripture that says this is just about you and God. See, God is looking for a people after his name, not just a person. And we in America have reduced Christianity to an individualistic prosperity, health, and wealth gospel that suits only the idolatry of me. And we have to understand that disciples of the cross means that we are united. We're in this together. This is about us. My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my presence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. And then he's going to share with us what the purpose of unity is. He says, there, he goes on and says, kind of as this therefore idea, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life.
how many things can you do without grumbling and complaining? I mean, this really hit me hard this week. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. I can't even make it through a stinking day without grumbling and complaining, much less the concept of doing everything without complaining or arguing. Complaining, by the way, and I started looking at the word, okay, well, maybe there's an out here uh, for me. (laughs) Maybe this word doesn't mean what I think it means. Really, the word complaining is uh, used frequently in the Old Testament as the people of the nation of Israel. Remember, the nation of Israel, and Paul's going to use them as an example in just a moment, but the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt. How long does it take them to start complaining? Not very long. They are delivered by the hand of God uh, from the most powerful nation on the earth at the time, they come out as free people. They go out in the desert, and it's not just, it's just days before they're saying, you know, I think we would have been better off there. I think, we, you know, we had food. Uh, we had a house. I mean, what's this desert, desert thing? This is not working for me. They start complaining against God, against Moses. First, they start complaining against Moses, and Moses says, hey, God, I don't know about these people here. I'm, you know, they, are, they don't like me very much. And God says to Moses, Moses, it's not you they're grumbling against, it's me. Though it may be directed at you, it's really me. They do not trust me enough. And then they start saying it over and over and over again. So that the word complaining uh, comes to mean murmuring, kind of like under the breath. They're saying it over and over. I mean, Moses, I just can't stand. Why? I don't know why we're here. I can't. I don't know why we're in the desert. This is stinks. I don't like this sand. I don't like this heat. Where are we going to get the food? Blah blah blah. And they they start to. The word murmur in the Old Testament is the word meditation. The word meditation. Now, meditating can be either positive, right? where we meditate on the Word of God and say it over and over and over and over again, or it can be negative, where we say it over and over and over and over and over again. When Paul says, do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing, he says, where you set your mind, what you repeat to yourself over and over and over again is where the rest of you is going to follow. We are, in general, not just us, but people, our hearts are quickly turned to grumbling and complaining. And when we grumble and complain, when we murmur, when we meditate on the negative, when we give voice to the negative, there is a loss of love. Listen to this. There's a loss of love. There's a loss of joy. There's a general unhappiness that results, and it increases the complaining. It is like a downward spiral. And you can complain or argue or murmur about almost anything. It will destroy a relationship. When you start thinking your spouse is one thing, and you start repeating this thing about them over and over and over and over and over and over, for days, weeks, months, years, You will experience a loss of love, 
a loss of joy, and a loss of happiness in your marriage. What are you going to do to turn the cycle around? Well, start meditating, start murmuring about who they are in the Lord. Start, I mean, they are not perfect. No one in here is married to a perfect person. Well, my wife maybe, but nobody else. Just kidding. Nobody's married to a perfect person. If you want to look for something to murmur about with your spouse or your children or your coworker or your pastor or your church, I guarantee you, you'll find it. Because we all have faults and failures. But instead, we also have the presence of the Lord. We have the strength of the Lord. Complaining leads to arguing, which leads to negative thoughts, which eventually is going to lead to division. It's going to lead to a loss of unity. Paul says the progression is like this. And if you study this whole passage and just go with me for a second. He says complaining leads to a lack of love. Arguing leads to a lack of joy and unhappiness. Lack of purity and blamelessness is because of a lack of faith. A loss of love, a loss of joy, and a loss of faith. We've said this before, your mental attitude and what you say to yourself and your, the faith that you exercise in your life, it contributes to your entire worldview. If you don't believe God is good enough, then you're going to view everything that happens around you through the lens that God is not good. Or at least God is not good to you. Uh, You may believe in the goodness of God, but you may not believe in the personal goodness of God. That he's good to you. Yeah, God's good to everybody else but me. You know, it's, it's me that's just not experiencing the goodness of God. And then you start to say it over and over and over again. You start to murmur to yourself and you experience that loss of joy that loss of relationship, and ultimately a lack of faith that God is going to step in on your behalf. And then you know what? You experience loss of joy, loss of relationship, loss of faith. You're standing over here because of your murmuring, your complaining, your lack of blamelessness, and then you say, sure enough, God doesn't love me. Do do you understand the trap you've put yourself in? You've placed yourself in a position where God... I hate to say God cannot move, but you're not giving him any room to move because you don't believe he could move anyway. Paul gives three descriptive words in this passage. He talks about being blameless, which is a word that focuses on the external, uh, to be blameless, and that's really to be blameless as others see you. When they look at you, that they see a life of blamelessness. He talks about being pure. This is a word that more focuses on the internal, to be unadulterated, without any mixture of evil, pure internally. And then he uses a third phrase, without fault, a word that's a general description that speaks of being without blemish. I mean, these, these are three very descriptive words that Paul gives us that were to be blameless, pure, and without fault. And here's the contrast he draws. He says, you, you, me, us, together, were to be pure, blameless, without fault, 
because we're the children of God. In contrast, we live in a crooked and depraved generation. So we're pure, blameless, without fault, but we live in a pure, in a, in a, um, in a what? Crooked, thank you, crooked and depraved generation. As a result, because of who we are in God and what we're doing, we shine like stars against the backdrop of a dark, dark night. Paul's saying this, we are to be apparently different than the world. Let me say this again. We are to be obviously, apparently different from the world. Now, think about this. How can you shine like a star if you look like the darkness? You can't. Because your life is so much like the world that we can't tell, they can't tell the difference. We've been called a Christian nation. And many stats seem to bear this out. But I would, I would contend this morning that the stats I'm about to give you are smoke and mirrors. And here's why. I'll give them to you and then I'll let you know. This is the Gallup poll from last year, 2013. 74% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. 76% of Americans say that religion is either very important or fairly important in their lives. 59% happen to be a member of some sort of church or synagogue. Now, now start to see, I, I don't know if you, um, you're, you're with numbers, I, I'm, I like numbers, but if you don't, don't look behind the curtain, you may not see it. You got 74, 75% of the people saying, hey, I'm a Christian or I'm a, strong, a believer, of some sort, you got 76% who say religion is very important. It's so important that only 59% happen to be a church, even a member of a church or a synagogue. 39% attended some sort of house of worship in the past week. It wasn't Easter week, but um, whenever the interview happened. 41% would describe themselves as born-again or evangelical Christians. And in the year 2012, over $100 billion was given to religious organizations during that year. Now, why do I say these numbers are smoke and mirrors? Because what happened is Gallup just interviewed Joe Blow on the street and said, hey, what do you, where do, you, do you think religion is important? Yeah, religion is very important to me. How would you, would you describe yourself as born again or event? Yeah, I would describe it. Three other groups, um, Barna, Pew Research, and I'm forget the third one, there's a book called The Great Evangelical Recession, have tried to look behind the curtain to say, what do Americans really believe? And when questioned about their beliefs, is the Bible true? Was Jesus Christ the Son of God? Did you receive Jesus as the one who forgives your sins and leads your life? They've come to the conclusion that of all of the people that are saying, these 70-something percent of people who are saying they are Christian or even evangelical Christian, only 7 to 9 percent of Americans are truly followers of Jesus Christ. Now, this leaves a gap that is massive between the 7 to 9 percent and the 50-something percent who think that they're Christians. One of the things that has happened in the church is we have become 
so like our culture, so like those on the outside that we can't shine like stars because we've become like everybody else. And part of this has to do with communication. Part of it has to do the way we talk to one another and the way we encourage one another. We don't understand even the same words that we're using anymore. We define them in different ways. Yesterday, uh, we were at the men's retreat uh, out in Springville, and um, it was about, I don't know, what time was it, David Robbins, 8.30 or so? You and I, we were out on the porch, and all of a sudden, I see all these cyclists going by. And I said to David, hey, I think they're having a race here. And so uh, David and I walk up to the main road to see the cyclists. They got numbers on the back. They're riding along. And so, sure, you're going to really like this. I start asking the cyclists questions as they're going by. It's kind of like, what's the race? And then the guy says, it's the Tour de Blue, you know, as he's going by. And, and so then I start asking number questions. How long have you been riding? How far have you been? What time did you start? Uh, Cheryl's been making fun of me for asking these kind of questions lately. But because I like to know. It's important to the story to me to know what time they started or how many of them there are and how far they're going. And so this one guy said, well, how far are you going? Across state. You know, he's kind of going by. And I said to David, across state? Man, that is a long way to ride across the state. So I said to the next person, how far have you been? 50 miles. You know, they're going on. I said, our state's a little further than that, isn't it? And I asked the next driver, are you at 40 miles? You know, they're going on by, and so I don't know what's going on. I couldn't get the numbers all kind of calculated in my head. So I go back, and I said, I look up the race. The Tour de Blue is for prostate awareness. And so I think the guy, I finally realized, the guy, I think he thought, what are you writing for? And he says, prostate. And then I thought he was saying, prostate. <laughs> what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> God has called us. I'll get you back in just a second. I know. God has called us to shine like stars against a dark night. God has called us to represent him to the world. God has called us to be ambassadors to a foreign nation. God has not called us to move to a nation and become like everybody else in that nation. He's called us to stand out, to be different. One of the ways that we are the most different is that we love each other with a stupid, crazy kind of love. Jesus' prayer for us was this. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus was praying for you in this prayer. He's praying for those who will believe in him through the message that began with the apostles and follows throughout all time till he returns. What is his prayer? That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they, he's still praying for us, people. 
may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Listen to this. May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. People, we... Our unity, our love for one another is part of our purity, our blamelessness, and the way we stand out in a crooked and depraved generation. I'm not trying to beat us up with this, but just to keep it at the forefront of our mind. I think fullness is a wonderful place. Of all the churches I've ever been a part of in my entire life, I've never been a part of a church like this one, where people loved each other and there's the lack of junk and backbiting and politics and that kind of stuff going on where people care more about the Lord. I, I, I promise you, when you get with a group of fullness people over a long period of time, you don't hear the primary conversation being about Alabama or Auburn football. It may happen, but at some point, almost in every conversation, you'll hear people start talking about what God is doing in their lives or in their family or, or ask for prayer. And, and To me, that's how we stand out, loving one another, not murmuring or complaining, but walking together in faith in the days ahead. This is not going to be a perfect place. It is not now. It it never will be until Jesus returns. If you're looking for the perfect church, hey, good luck with that. But if you're looking for people who love the Lord, and want to journey together in faith to see what God will do, welcome to a family that loves each other. And as we do, we will stand out as stars in the night. Paul then gives a picture of unity. I won't take it as long on each point. He gives a picture of unity in verses 14 through 16. He says, again, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. It goes on and says, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Paul is using language here, by the way, from Deuteronomy 31 and 32, which is considered the song of Moses. This is Moses' last, um, his farewell address, if you were. And in Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 and 5, um, here's what Paul, excuse me, here's what Moses says in, uh, according to uh, Kent Hughes, who translates it like this. God, his works are truth and all his ways are right. He is a faithful God and he is not unjust. Just and pure is the Lord. They sinned, they who were not his children, full of fault, a crooked and depraved generation. And he, Moses goes on to say, Basically this, the nation of Israel was intended to be a light to the world that there was a one true God. They were to be a nation over whom God ruled, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't work together. They couldn't live lives of purity and blamelessness. They they had these expectations, and they started looking around at the other nations of the world and saying, hey, well, we want to be like them, or we want to be like them. We want to be like them. And instead of looking to God, 
and to listening to him, they, they became a picture of what it means to not be the people of God. This year, a book was released called The Upside of Down. There's another book by this title that was released like 20 years ago, but this is a newer book, and it's by uh, Megan McArdle. And she talks about how Peter Skillman, who was then head of what was called user experience for Palm. You remember your Palm things? There's a little Palm. Does anybody still have a Palm? Anyone? Anyone still in the Dark Ages still using their Palm? He used to have the palm with the dates. It was one of the first early organizers, calendars, kind of thing with a little stylus and all this. Anyway, this guy gathered some groups. He, gra- he gathered different small groups of different people who were like-minded. So he got engineers, lawyers, business school students, MBAs, even uh, kids of different ages, kindergartners and others, and gave each group, listen to this, He gave each group 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti, a meter of tape, a piece of string. So you got it? 20 uncooked strands of spaghetti, some tape, and a string. And here was their job. They were to build, in 18 minutes, they were to build the highest tower they could with the spaghetti that would then support the weight of a marshmallow. You with me? 20 pieces of spaghetti, some tape, some string. Build it as high as you can in 18 minutes with a marshmallow. Well, the engineers did better than the MBAs and the lawyers who couldn't even agree on who should lead the group. (laughs) But of all the groups, the people that built the highest tower and won the contest hands down, kindergartners. Kindergartners beat engineers, lawyers, MBAs, and every other small group. Why? Because they didn't care who led. They didn't have any preconceived idea what their tower should look like. They didn't care how pretty it was. Um, and and they, were, they were gumptious enough that if they broke a piece of spaghetti, they asked for another one. Hey, we broke this one. Can we get another piece of spaghetti there? <laughs> for the one we just broke? You know, the others would not even think outside. Oh, we broke that one. What are we going to do with it? <laughs> Kindergartners, hey, can I get another piece of spaghetti? Johnny broke this one. Too often, we don't even know how influenced we are in our thinking by our society and our culture and our time. I would say that if we want to be really a picture of the unity of the cross, that we have to get back to Jesus the power of the Spirit, the idea that we walk together in unity. Where they, the nation of Israel, failed because they tried to become like others, we can succeed if we keep our eyes fixed on the likeness of Jesus Christ. Third point, final point, is that the promise of unity. In verses 17 and 18, he says this, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. There's a promise that comes out of unity. What is this promise? It is that joy comes from harmony, from submission. We looked at this at uh, the men's retreat somewhat this weekend. We had a great time the men did together 
Chris taught last night about um, being submitted to the Lord, about really receiving him. As a result, what we get is joy. When we unite with one another. We live in a culture, again, that says, get everything you can, just get it all. Hold on to it. Don't let anybody else have it. It's yours. Hang on to it. Jesus, he never used a sword. He never used a weapon, yet he won the greatest battle in all of history. The battle against sin and death and hell. How? Because he he manifested love. He surrendered. And as a result of his surrender, he was victorious. We, I'm going to wind this up. We live in an age that says your greatest joy is going to be experienced if you never have to suffer. If you never have bad things happen. So organize your life in a way that reduces suffering to the least amount. And if you do, then you got the best shot at happiness. Or this. God made you like that. If you want to be happy, which God wants you to be, then you just be the perfect whatever you are you are. And that will make you happy. If you want to indulge in any sinful behavior and your heart is really drawn that way and that makes you happy, just just go with it. Because God, he wants you to be happy, right? No, God wants you to be Christ-like. He wants you to be united with him. He wants you to be united with one another because it's there even when we endure suffering. Even then, when we go through trials, and we're going to talk about this next week, I want to know the power of his resurrection and share with him in his sufferings, become like him. That's where we find true joy. God is calling us, fullness, to live in harmony and unity so that we can be beacons to the world, bringing people to the love of Jesus Christ. We can't bring people to some form of Christ that is more like us than like him. My friend Clark Whitten, one time, he and a buddy were out witnessing, and they found this guy at a, like a 7-Eleven area, and they witnessed to him. The guy receives Christ, says the prayer. They go away. They're really proud of themselves. And next morning, the guy calls Clark and says, Hey, Pastor, have you seen the, the paper this morning? And Clark said, No, I haven't seen the paper. Clark, the guy says, well, you might want to look at the paper. So Clark goes and gets the paper. He's still on the phone with the guy. He looks at the paper. The guy they had saved the night before, about an hour later, robbed the 7-Eleven. And the guy says to Clark, Pastor, I think we saved that one. I don't think God had much to do with it. Too often we get caught up in what we got to do versus what we're doing under the power and presence of God. And and really, people living in harmony and unity together will make all the difference in our future. As we live in harmony and unity, doing everything, I love that, I'm going to keep hitting it, do everything without complaining or arguing. We'll have faith 
and we'll receive the very thing that most of us are seeking, which is true joy. And we will shine like the world. I'm going to show you one more video. This is a video that's uh, it's, it's from South Africa. It's called The Battle at Kruger. This is an edited version of the, the version I'm going to show you is about three minutes long. Uh, the longer version is eight minutes long, and it's been seen on YouTube by 75 million people. Some of you may have seen it already. I'm going to kind of narrate it as we go through the background voices uh, that are on the video. Um, they cuss a little bit if you watch it on the whole thing, so I'm not going to keep the volume down, Randy, if you don't mind. And I'll kind of narrate what takes place. It begins with Mama and Daddy Water Buffalo and Little Baby out on a stroll across the savanna. By the way, if you are really bothered by animal-on-animal violence, I want to give you a heads up. You may want to step out. It's not gruesome, but it is slightly disturbing. But just hang through the whole thing. And now some of you are like, all right, now church is getting good. This is long overdue. I think you'll get the point as we go along. So here we go with mom and daddy, daddy, baby buffalo. And suddenly things turn bad. She's going for him. She's going for him. She caught him. Oh, she did. I don't know if you thought cats hated water, but they obviously like water buffalo more. What you're not going to see in this video, some of you are getting a little squeamish already. It doesn't get horrible from here. But what I did edit out is suddenly a fight develops between lions and crocodiles over this um, little baby water buffalo. So I did edit that out for some of you. That's in the longer version where crocodiles then come start pulling on. There's this tug of war with baby water buffalo. Now the, water bu- uh, the, the lions win. They drag baby water buffalo up on the land and are holding the water buffalo down. I think you're right. Now they're too late. When Mama and Daddy have gone back and told their friends, you're too late. You're too late. Hey, you guys, you cannot believe what's going on here. There's a big area between lions, crocodiles, and buffalo. Look at them all. Whoa. He swatted at him and kicked at him. He's kicking at him. Look. He's kicking at him. Watch Ooh, carefully coming up. Yeah, yeah, come on, come on. 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 Come on, come on
These water buffalo are not giving up on this baby. The calf's still alive. Yeah, it's trying to get away. Look at the baby start to get up. It's standing up. Did you see him go back in the herd? This part I love. They did not leave those lions just sitting there. Oh, we got the baby. Let's go. According to experts, these Cape water buffalo typically function in various individual groups. They even fight with each other. But according to an expert, if a youngster is threatened, both the harem males and bachelor males, which usually fight with one another, will get together to try to rescue it. Three water buffalo didn't stand a chance against the four lions. But hundreds of buffalo easily prevailed. I think you see the picture without me expounding on it too much, but the Bible says clearly that we have an enemy who is like what? A roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. By yourself, I would contend that you do not have the power to stand alone against the schemes of the enemy, nor were you ever intended to. But together, in unity and power, we can prevail. Make every effort, Paul says in Ephesians, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May we, on this day, our 21st anniversary as a church, know that we are called to be unified in order to be light in a dark place, that God has given us many pictures of what it looks like to be a people of unity, and that when we are, that we will experience the love and joy so that when Paul comes back in Philippians later and says, rejoice in the Lord always, oh, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. He understands that even in prison where he was, he could rejoice because the church was one. Stand up with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for who you are and what you're doing in our midst. We pray, O God, that you would, by your power and your might, that you would move among us. Lord, I pray that you would make us one as you, Lord, 
and the Father are one. Through the power of the Spirit, make us one. And may we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you, we bless you, we praise you. May fullness Christian fellowship shine like a beacon to the world of the goodness and glory and power of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Be seated. We are going to take up an offering.